Bloomberg Westminster, on demand via the Bloomberg Business app and wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And a very good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepker. And this is a special edition of the show, Roger. So we've just heard that debate between the four main candidates for London mayor ahead of the vote on the 6th of May. Six million Londoners expected to vote. What did you make of it? Well, it seemed a very, a very staid debate in some ways. Very, um, not, not very passionate, perhaps one might say. But it's very hard, of course, at this time where we're all not actually together, but all linked by uh, video in various forms. Now, I thought what was interesting was certainly a big push for greater powers for London, for the London mayor. Greater powers perhaps over transport, greater powers perhaps over money. That would always be a good thing, I think, as far as whoever sits in City Hall would be concerned. And also a push, really, to try to mention one of the key industries in London, one, of course, that we're only too familiar with, which is financial services. Yeah, absolutely. I think pretty much all the candidates um, in that debate, the four main candidates, um, talked up their pro-business focus. They talked about the recovery after the pandemic, a green recovery, jobs for young people. But then they also touched, of course, on the big issues that anyone living in London is very focused on, transport and housing. Labour's Sadiq Khan sort of defending some of uh, his record on housing and uh, and uh, sounding very upbeat, a few sort of historic references from the incumbent, others much more critical of his record. Yes, he did manage to mention the Blitz, which is almost obligatory in these circumstances. Uh, anyway, let's talk about the wider field for London Mayor, because uh, it's wider than it's ever been this year. On Bloomberg Westminster, we've spoken to uh, six candidates who polled the highest, including Sadiq Khan, Sean Bailey, of course, from the Conservatives, the Liberal Democrat Louisa Porritt, Sean Berry from the Green Party, and also Mandu Reid from the Women's Equality Party and UKIP's Peter Gammons. But there are 14 other candidates running to lead City Hall. Bloomberg's Leanne Gerrans has taken a close a look at the other mayoral hopefuls and what they're campaigning for. We begin with the Renew Party candidate Kam Balayev, who has worked in the field of international law and global business and is calling for a respectable basic income. Count Binface is also back on the polling card for Mayor of London. The self-proclaimed interplanetary space warrior has previously challenged both Boris Johnson and Theresa May in general elections. Burning Pink's candidate Valerie Brown wants to implement illegally binding citizens' assemblies in place of the mayor. Meanwhile, most people will know Piers Corbyn as the older brother of former Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn, but the long-term weather forecaster is running for the Let London Alive party and hoping to end all coronavirus lockdowns. Two YouTubers have also put their hat in the ring for London's top job. The 26-year-old British YouTuber Max Foch has more than 88,000 subscribers and is a former radio presenter. Nico Omilana is mostly known for his prank style videos and has over 1 million followers. Both are running as independent candidates. Well-known British actor Lawrence Fox set up the Reclaim Party in 2020 and wants to tackle the knife crime epidemic with, quote, New York-style policing. Richard Hewson from Rejoin EU is an anti-Brexit campaigner who runs a company that offers training courses in the financial sector. 
Richard Hewson from Rejoin EU is an anti-Brexit campaigner who runs a company that offers training courses in the financial sector. The leader of the Animal Welfare Party, Vanessa Hudson, is also running and aside from the obvious priorities, is pushing for a carbon net zero status for London by 2025. Stephen Keller from the Social Democratic Party was formerly a Brexit Party candidate at the general election and is now targeting 50,000 new council houses per year by 2024. Former teacher David Curtin from the Heritage Party currently sits with the Brexit Alliance Group on the London Assembly, but he's hoping to become mayor with a campaign focusing on free speech. Croydon-born Farrah London is an independent candidate and a successful businesswoman in the commercial sector. She's hoping to make Londoners proud of their city again. The issue of knife crime is also front and centre of Nimus Obanji, the independent pastor and chief executive of the Peace Alliance. Our final City Hall hopeful is former Wall Street banker Brian Rose. His London Real Party is looking to abolish the congestion charge and has spent a seven-figure sum on his campaign. So there you have Bloomberg's Leanne Gerens there taking us through all of the other City Hall hopefuls. And of course, you can see a full list of the candidates for London Mayor get... Uh, details about their uh, platforms at www.londonelects.org.uk. So check them out there. Right. Let's now talk to Bloomberg Opinions, Therese Raphael, who joins us. Uh, Therese, thanks for being with us today. Now, uh, I think you were able to hear at least part of that debate. Uh, what stood out for you? What were the most memorable or salient points? Well, I think what stood out is the way each candidate frames the de- frames the the mayoral race through the lens of their most um, you know salient and important kind of issue. So we you know we heard from the Green candidate, um, you know, the, the getting rid of uh, city airport, for example, and using say Crossrail to provide a city Heathrow link. Um, looking you know uh, looking at reducing traffic on London roads. You know everything through that that green lens, as you would expect. I did think uh, Louisa Porritt was a one who, uh, the one ca- challenger candidate who seemed to have, um, say, the most complete idea of what she wanted to do on on different fronts. So, um, you know, talking about um, converting office space into housing, for example, uh, reinventing high streets, uh, you know, looking at you know homes policies with. Uh, a view toward implementing what she's seen work in other uh, cities such as Rotterdam. I thought um, all of that, uh, you know, looked to directly challenge some of Saudi Khan's policies or, or absence of policies, some might say, in certain areas. And, you know, also tried to, uh, you know, present a kind of more positive vision. And, and for Sadiq, for the, you know, the incumbent mayor who's under huge pressure, I think, from not just the other candidates, but from really a, a public that has, you know, coming through this pandemic, seen a lot of jobs lost in London, and, and huge questions about where the city goes in at a time when so many retail, hospitality, all of that, the, the sector that is so important to the, in the lifeblood of London is uh, under pressure. And he was trying constantly to kind of present a positive vision. Our best days are ahead of us. 
um, you know, talking about investment in the West End, the central activity zone, um, and all of that. But really, he's on the back foot on housing, and I think that comes out, you know, when when he has these debates. Yes, it's complicated. Uh, you know, yes, starting a, ho- a housing project uh, requires time before you can get to the completion of it. But you know, the record mm. isn't great, and I think Londoners are, are going to really want uh, to hold their mayor to account on that. Um, but you know, where Sadiq I think comes through, uh, you know, in, in a way that stands out from obviously the challengers is his relationships that he's built with city mayors. He's not really able to say exactly what that brings to London, but I think Londoners understand that their mayor is representing them on the world stage, and yep. he's able to do that. And, and I think that's, that's going to be a high bar for the other candidates to meet. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. I think you put that point about Louisa Poet, the Liberal Democrat um, candidate. Yeah. And uh, Sean Berry of the Green Party. But you are right that perhaps um, as it has at no other time before that the mayor is um, having to face up to the events, the crisis that the city's just been through. But tell us about the role of the mayor of London, because I think that perhaps is in flux because not just uh, of the pandemic, but also Brexit. We know how powerful, how influential is that role? How much is it being developed now? How much might it change under whoever occupies City Hall next? I think there's a huge asymmetry between, on the one hand, the importance of London to the UK economy, to Britain's place in the world, which uh, is obviously changing after Brexit as a showcase, as the centre of power, and the actual power that is concentrated in the hands of the London mayor, which, as we know, you know, when it comes to tax-raising powers and all sorts of other uh, uh, powers, is, is not that substantial. And so I think you know, what I would have wanted to hear from each of them is, you know, really how they intend to uh, in really expand the role of the mayoralty. And I think we're, we're going to see that debate play out, not just in London, but in, you know, major um, sort of city centers. You know, we've seen Andy Street in the West Midlands. Um, the Scottish devolution debate is also about local power. So where we've seen um, government policy, you know, perhaps not suiting certain uh, parts of the country, you know, that's where there's more of a case to be made for local government. And, you know, can can the mayor of London uh, claw back some of the taxes that go from London to the central government? Can he get more or she get more control over uh, policies that right now sit with the central government? Um, now, it's interesting that, you know, the conservative mayoral candidate, Sean Bailey, should be in the best position, right, to uh, argue for those things. But I thought that the case he made was quite limited for that, that, there, you know, he, it, maybe one would say it's a realist case that in the end, central government is not going to want to devolve too many powers Mm. to London. And, you know, of course, the other side of that that we don't talk enough about is just how difficult it is sometimes to get the boroughs uh, to be aligned with, uh, you know, with with what the mayor um, and the London Assembly want. So there's um, a, a lot of differing priorities. You know, we heard it green versus, you know, bringing people back into the city and allowing the circulation of cars so that, uh, you know, commerce can start up again. So there are conflicting uh, values, conflicting aims, uh, even if 
everyone is looking to rejuvenate and repurpose parts of London for the post-pandemic and post-Brexit age. And finally, and briefly, Therese, I mean, I suppose it's one of these situations where a lot of people, even at local elections, often feel they're voting on a national forum. I mean, how much is this contest going to reflect actually what, uh, well, potentially anger against Boris Johnson or feelings about Labour rather than actually what's going on in London? It could. I mean, London tends to lean quite left, Boris Johnson being the exception of the uh, of a conservative mayor. And I think there's probably a lot of uh, feeling in London that um, either that the issues here are are very local and maybe you know not best uh, you know not well addressed by a prime minister who's currently embroiled in you know in, in various kind of sleaze allegations that said don't forget you know rishi sunak has delivered a huge uh uh you know, stimulus in the form of furlough payments i think that's helped a lot of londoners hold on to their jobs and so you know that, that probably has a play too but you know, the incumbent has to be said to be the favorite here you know for a, a number of reasons it's probably the weakness of the challenger field and, and the breadth of the challenger field. It becomes difficult for many Londoners to know uh, really you know, what, what the different platforms are. Well, we've just been speaking to Bloomberg Opinions' Therese Raphael Roger. We've been dissecting our mayoral debate. So we had the four main uh, candidates on, uh, hosted by Bloomberg's Anna Edwards. We've also heard about the other 16 candidates who are running for that top job. Yeah, and if you want to catch up with who they are, you can do it by going to the website londonelects.org. But now it's time to find out just how everyone is polling ahead of next week's local elections, what issues are top of the agenda for voters. According to a fresh poll from Ipsos Mori, the Conservatives have plunged five points after weeks of a growing sleaze controversy, Boris Johnson being put through the ringer in the House of Commons today. While still ahead of Labour, it does undermine Tory hopes perhaps a little in next week's election. Elections. For more, we're pleased to be joined by Ipsos Mori's Chief Executive, Ben Page. Ben, thanks for being with us. Welcome to the programme. Uh, first of all, we've been talking about London. Do you, is there a sense, do we get any knowledge really about how London could vote in these elections? Well, of course, the main thing one has to remember with the local elections is that most people don't vote in them. So un- unlike a general election or, in- or indeed opinion polls, when you're looking at uh, you know the countrywide countrywide voting intention. The first thing is that last time in London, in, back in 2016, of course, we deferred the 2020 elections uh, because of the pandemic. Only 45% of people voted. That was actually um, an improvement. That was up seven points from the previous election. So, but that was because it was seen as a close race. I think this time, uh, most people, pro- again, won't vote. Uh, you know, it's, pretty, it's, a, it's a fairly um, unexciting uh, campaign in some ways because Sadiq Khan is certainly not the most exciting candidate to set the world alight, but he's streets ahead of uh, his main rival, the, the Conservative, Mr Bailey. And uh, that, it's been that way pretty much, uh, you know, for, for months and months and months, to be honest, all through, all through 2020 and all through 2021. The polls have really barely moved. Um, the only excitement has been a couple of points that suggesting that Sadiq, that usually the, 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 lead, the, the winner wins with some transferred second preference votes. There were some signs at some point that Sadiq Khan could win just on first preferences, which would be a, a record for a, in, in the mayoral contest. It doesn't, it doesn't look that way at the moment. And I think it reflects just how different London is, of course, from the rest of England in many ways. I'm far more diverse. There's a very strong 
uh, ethnic dimension to how voting preferences go between Labour and the Conservatives in London. And, of course, uh, in Zone 1 of London, central London, uh, only 40% of people are white British. Uh, so all of the, all of these factors playing out, but the fact that the government is you know going through some wobbles, the fact that it's uh, not coinciding with a general election or anything like that means that it's almost certain Sadiq Khan is going to win. Mm. Okay. Um, well, you say London is is very different from the rest of the country. Yes, of course it is. But in some senses, um, I've heard the idea that it is simply about who is in power in Westminster that affects who then gets City Hall. You know that you that you don't have um, parties of the same stripe holding those um, offices at the same time. Is that is that it? I mean, how does what's going on in London sort of reflect the national picture? Well, I think that's certainly, it's certainly true that in local elections, you know, the, the, the parliamentary opposition should do better when they're in opposition, you know, they do better in, in, in local elections in opposition. I mean, Tony Blair, who had huge majorities in general elections, uh, regularly lost by-elections in between his general election victories. But, you know, again, this is why, in a sense, reading too much into... Um, the you know into local elections like them, even though they're important, like the mayoral election where most people don't vote, is difficult to sort of read the mood of the country as a whole. But I think it is just a reminder that London is is much more educated, much more diverse. It's an absolute stronghold for Labour, um, unlike uh, the red wall seats, of course, in the north, where there are some some different contests taking place, and the Hartlepool by-election would be astonishing, for example, if the Conservatives were able to win that. There have been some polling suggesting they might be ahead. That is one of the most deprived places in England, and for the Conservatives to win there would be a, a big sign of a sort of a, some sort of realignment of British politics. But in London, um, you know, it's a Labour city, and it's got, against the national swing, the swing has actually often been to Labour in recent elections, despite Labour losing the general elections. They've got stronger and stronger in London. And um, the Tories are suffering in, in part because their candidate is fairly outspoken and it just isn't able to, in some ways, connect with the, the sort of, in, in some ways, wealthy people who you might expect to be conservative voters in other parts of Britain. Well, Ben, let's reflect slightly more then on the national picture, because it may, I guess, have an effect as well. And that seems to be of interest, particularly in the light of what's going on with what for short we'll call Sleazegate, the allegations against Boris Johnson in various forms, which he's having to defend himself against. How much is this actually cutting through? Because I've lost count of the number of Conservative MPs who said, oh, no, the public aren't interested. Are they not well, interested? I mean I think the first thing to remember is that we've been asking how much you trust MPs to tell the truth in Britain every year since 1983. And uh, it's pretty much unchanged over that period. It's about 15% of people think that politicians as a whole tell the truth. We've just found that uh, one person in three does believe that uh, Boris Johnson is trustworthy, uh, but six in ten don't. But just again, another before one sort of gets too excited, remember that the most honest candidate for prime minister rarely becomes prime minister. And it's normally the person who's seen as most competent. So Neil Kinnock, uh, for those of you who remember him against Mrs. Thatcher throughout the 1980s, was consistently seen as more honest than her and consistently lost general elections. So I think the issue is that lots of this stuff, given his exciting private life um, and, and scapes and gaffes and all the rest of it in the past, a lot of it is priced in. And although we, we saw a drop in the share of the Tory share of the vote 
in our polling that finished on Friday night, before the latest exciting revelations, there have been more recent polls which suggest that it really doesn't seem to yet have cut through. I don't think we should write it off completely, because I think if it's a distraction from the things that people expect to be governed, if they're constantly rowing and putting up new curtains for you know, for tens of grand a pop and all this sort of thing, and all of the focus is on that, it doesn't help. But on the fundamentals, do you want, uh, you know, Boris Johnson or Keir Starmer to be prime minister? Boris Johnson continues to have a strong lead. Mm, okay. Uh, yes, I love that. Uh, I'll put it this way. Slippery politicians, perhaps, is the way that uh, voters might see it, um, well, it you know, just, by your you know, polling sort of, account. Yeah. What do bears do in the woods? Does the Pope kiss tarmac? So to, to a lot of voters, this is the sort of you know reaction that they'll be having to some of this detail. And although Westminster gets terribly excited about whether the money being lent to Boris Johnson or given was was in the was you know no money is currently being provided by the Conservative Party, does that mean that it was provided in the past, except for his redecorations, etc.? This is all getting a bit you know a bit into the into the weeds, I, I think. But, but let's see. Let's see. Yeah. I mean. Okay. Speaking as someone who was arrested once with Neil Kinnock, I mean, I can account to the fact that he was never someone who seemed to be able to catch the mood. And I suppose, Ben, that's the point, isn't it? It's somehow catching the mood of the moment, somehow being the sort of person that people think, yeah, all right, they can do stuff. The, the days when people, slight uh, faux pas would actually get you not elected have gone, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, we're a much more we're a much more liberal country in all sorts of ways, where, and we're also less deferential. There's also more scrutiny, of course, of, of all sorts of uh, things by people in power um, in a way that actually there wasn't in the 1980s. So, uh, I, I, but I think with Boris Johnson, uh, quite a lot of this is is, is pretty much um, priced in. And remember, the government still has 97% of Conservative voters and 85% of Labour voters who presumably don't like Boris Johnson so much, saying that it's doing a good job in, in the vaccine rollout. Ratings of its uh, the background, while these polls show that the government potentially slipping, overall ratings of the government's handling the pandemic have continued on an upward trajectory um, over the last few months. And so I think, and that is ultimately the number one issue rather than potential sleaze um, at the moment. And so let's let's wait and see. I mean, I think if it, you know, if, if the more amazing revelations comes out or an audio tape saying, you know, I don't mind if everybody's grand any dies comes out or something like that you might you might see some movement but i'm i'm not pricing it in at the moment Now, let's talk about some of the issues that came up, of course, during the debate, but which are issues anyway for anyone who gets to get into City Hall. Time to dig into what's going to be front and centre for voters in London, or at least should be. Knife crime, affordable housing, transport, pollution, almost all are on the candidates' agendas. What will matter most to Londoners? What's essential for the capital to come back swinging from the pandemic? Well, joining us now, very pleased to say, is Paul Swinney, Director of Policy and Research at the Centre for Cities, and also Rob Whitehead. Director of Strategic Projects at the Centre for London. Welcome both. Um, let's first of all come to you, Paul. So recovery, uh, the main issue surely for the next mayor, will will be the recovery. You argue there should be a campaign to get people to return to London, for there to be high-quality offices. All that is what you think needs to generate the recovery. Is that true? It is, yes. I think we, uh, or London is has been one of the strongest performing cities, I think, not only in the UK, but probably across the world, with certainly at its very centre, lots of high-paid jobs. Now, 
I don't see why, uh, we don't think that fundamentally that will uh, change the result of COVID. And indeed, Roger, we've spoken about this in, in, uh, in the past on previous episodes about how we think that people will return back to the centre of London to work because of the benefits of, of working in an office, face-to-face interaction with colleagues and clients and collaborators, and maybe even competitors too. But I think the, the issue is probably there will be some reticence to go back in the short term. You know, people still concerned about COVID, quite rightly. Um, there'll be concern around using public transport, quite rightly, not least sort of influenced by the, the big campaign we had this time last year for people not to, to get on public transport. And so I think the first, the first measure that the new mayor will need to do is to have a, a London is Open style campaign, which is central London is open, you know, get people back, not only getting them back into the offices, but also getting them walking down past the, the Pretz and the Leons and the other high street businesses that have been hit very hard and, uh, and have seen London's use of the furlough scheme be very high as a result. So it's not just about getting those office jobs back, but it's also about getting them back to then getting those people spending money to support the jobs in the, in the shops around them. Yep, the whole infrastructure of the city. Let's bring in Rob Whitehead, who is Director of Strategic Projects at the Centre for London. Rob, we're talking about what the next mayor will have to do um, to bring London really back to life after the pandemic. You talk a lot about how London really needs a fairer recovery, that people in the capital have been very hard hit by unemployment, by the pandemic. And you've talked actually about um, this idea of a charter for the self-employed because there's been such an explosion of people who are working for themselves. Just explain that idea. Uh, Yes, thanks. Hello, everyone. Um, uh, We're concerned that the self-employed have been hit particularly hard uh, in the pandemic. Um, So we just want to see measures brought in uh, that gives them some safeguards uh, and some security through this and any future uh, turmoil. I mean, you ask about uh, kind of top priorities. I think uh, Paul's right. You know, we're going to need to see Uh, to get the economy sort of floated again and uh, benefiting as many people as possible, we're going to need to see people back into central London. And so the mayor, whoever it might be, although we've probably all got a fairly strong suspicion, um, is going to have to do what they can to get people uh, back uh, into the offices and into the the, the sort of uh, uh, theatres and restaurants and pubs and clubs in central London. And then we all stand a chance of benefiting from that increased activity. But, but Rob, some people say that sounds almost um, inequitable in a way, because the people who have the secure jobs, the people who eat at the restaurants, the people who, who, who dine out, they are a particular section of London. And OK, there's a support structure that needs to be there for them as well. And perhaps those are the, probably the lower paid. But isn't there a, in a moment where perhaps that needs to be adjusted in some way, make a more equitable uh, recovery? Uh, Yeah, I think there's some truth in what you're saying. But as Paul's already alluded to, um, you know, if if you don't have uh, restaurants uh, hiring people and paying salaries uh, or theatres or uh, pubs and clubs and lots of the other amenities and shops and destinations that we have in in London, not just in central London, they are heavily concentrated in central London, then then people at the lower end of the, the social and economic spectrum uh, lose out enormously, and they're the ones that have least resilience. So they're the ones with less money in their savings accounts, um, perhaps more vulnerable to these, you know, short-term uh, uh, hits. And we've seen uh, that reflected really uh, through the through the epidemic. Mm. One of the things that um, I mean, both national government and governments around the world have talked about post-pandemic 
is not just a recovery, but a green recovery. Paul, the idea of um, London, pollution in London, uh, the capital has failed on air quality levels for years. Um, and there was discussion, um, that there's discussion about what should happen next. I mean, the various schemes, the low traffic neighbourhoods, uh, the ULES scheme in London, what should the next mayor do to actually try to help reduce terrible pollution in the capital? Well, the first, I think, is to um, to recommit to the extension of the low emission zone, which is due to uh, take place in October of this year and go out to the North Circular and South Circular roads. So it expanded out from its, its quite central geography at the moment. Um, and then beyond that, I think, it's then looking at, um, at what is the... Uh, What's the current structure of, of the congestion uh, charging zone? Should that be extend, extended? Should the charges be changed? And indeed, should we be looking to price all roads in um, in London um, to make the driver pay for the um, for the, the costs that they produce in terms of pollution and in terms of congestion? So, I think you know, London has been at the forefront of uh, of, of making tough decisions around air pollution and congestion, which you know. And it's done that since 2000, around about 2000, when the congestion uh, charging zone came in. And it's much further forward than most of the cities in the UK. I mean, it's decades ahead of them, which is which is kudos to London. But as you say, you know, air quality has not improved the extent that we needed to to bring it down below um, below the legal threshold. And so more will need to be done. Uh, first thing, extension of the ULES, and then beyond that, thinking about how other congestion charging uh, areas need to be extended and perhaps uh, charges increased as well. Yeah, Rob, I mean, I guess that's something that you'd be concerned about. I mean, we, we saw this case of this uh, little girl in London whose death was directly linked by the coroner to air quality. It clearly is something almost forcing the national government to, to do something. At least that's one of the hopes. Is it also something, perhaps for the ULEs, that, that, that would actually, that London could be a pioneer in? Well, I think it is. And I, I mean, but, uh, I think it's important to sort of step back a bit as well. I mean, in my in my eyes, ULEZ is both a, a radical proposition, which could be imitated around the world, but it's also not radical enough. Because if we step back, um, we've got a climate emergency to deal with, as well as local air quality challenges. Um, so we need to see a plan from the mayor that really addresses the big challenges and actually lays out in some detail how we're going to get to these much vaunted net zero targets, the current mayor says, by 2030. But the current plans don't really get us there. So how are we going to look at that overall and uh, find ways of implementing change quickly that's Mm. going to stop us burning fossil fuels to move around our city? And as Paul says, one of the ways we might do that is a sort of comprehensive road user charging scheme. We've done quite a lot of work on that at Centre for London. Um, But we also need to look at other ways that we are contributing to climate crisis. So heating in our homes and our buildings is contributing hugely uh, and we're seeing no progress in that area either. Uh, same in transport. So what what are we going to do? Like zooming out, yes, air quality is important. What are we going to do about decarbonising the city? Yeah, and I think this touches on a point um, that is not talked about enough, which is engagement with the public and also dialogue with central government. I mean, the role of the Mayor of London um, really sits between those two difficult demands and you've talked Rob about the difficulty of engaging with the public when it comes to really radical proposals and policy shifts which a lot of kind of environmentalists are saying that we really have to commit to because of climate change but it's it's going to be very hard to bring the public and central government along with the new mayor. I, I think you're right um, 
and and perhaps the the recent sort of um, furore around uh, low traffic neighbourhoods is a bit of an example of, of this, where we pushed hard. We've had a sort of excuse uh, in the epidemic to put radical changes in, but local communities sometimes have really pushed back. Um, so we need to learn from that and uh, engage people in local change uh, better. Um, and we can learn from cities like Barcelona and Paris about how we might do that. But at the same time, there is a role for political leadership here to have clear vision and clarity of thought about what the big challenges are and to come up with propositions uh, and sell them to the people that are actually going to address those challenges, as you could say Ken Livingston did with uh, the congestion uh, charge. Just a reminder that you're listening to a special edition of Bloomberg Westminster following a, a live debate with the candidates, some of the candidates uh, for mayor. If you want a full list of London mayoral candidates, you go to the website londonelects.org.uk. We're discussing some of the ideas that any of the candidates will have to uh, address. Uh, what, and with us is Paul Swinney, who's Director of Policy and Research at the Centre for Cities, and also Rob Whitehead, Director of Strategic Projects at the Centre for London. Paul, let me pick up on one issue that was addressed during the debate and probably has to be on all occasions which is housing i mean it's kind of the most important thing of all in a way if you can't live in the city you're not part of the city how do you think paul that you should that that london could develop in terms of housing making housing better and more equitable once we come out of the pandemic so yeah housing is is definitely at the the top of the agenda i think it it points that and and air pollution points to the challenges that london faces which is London is a successful place, um, but it needs to deal with the fallout of success, which is increased congestion, increased pollution, uh, and increasing house prices as well. There are two things I think um, need to happen with this. And the first is there needs to be a sensible conversation about the green belt around London, particularly around um, uh, sites around train stations, uh, where you can very easily commute into London from. Um, and that will be both uh, land that sits within the, the, the mayor's boundaries, the Greater London boundaries, authority boundaries, but also probably having to talk with neighbouring authorities as well um, to get more houses built in those places where we can try and minimise the uh, the carbon footprint of those types of developments while increasing the, the number of houses that are available. I think also there's, um, there's a discussion to be had about whether we um, remove minimum space standards for houses that are built uh, in London too. Now, that probably sounds, on the face of it, a pretty a heinous thing to say. But the reality is, I think, is that if you look at the amount of space that um, that people have who can't afford their own place and sort of push into a house share, um, you find actually the, the, the amount of space that they have is way below what minimum space standards set out. And so if we were able to pull minimum space standards down a little bit, increase the number of homes that are available to make them um, more in reach of people, perhaps to live on their own if they wanted to, um, then uh, then actually the, the amount of space that they would have available to them would increase because they're having their own place rather than having to share with, with others. But um, they're two pretty, yeah. um, pretty big things to, um, to tackle, but the, the two things that do need to be tackled if we are, going to be, if we are serious about the housing crisis. Yeah, and I love the way that you've talked about having a sensible conversation around the green belt. I mean, that is a hugely controversial issue um, for, for voters, isn't it? Um, what happens to the green spaces around uh, London, um, you know, as it sort of spreads out? Look, Rob, again, the housing issue, you've talked about pushing that this is one area where the mayor could push for more powers, for sort of devolved powers to come to London. What are the chances really of any uh, future mayor getting their house? hands on more power to build more homes to make more decisions about a planning hugely thorny issue 
Uh, it's a good question. I, I have to say the prospects at the moment of more powers uh, to the mayor or other bodies in London look fairly bleak. Um, we've got used to maybe in recent decades, uh, you know, new structures broadly seen as uh, su- successful and functioning. But then in the last few years, there's been a bit of a pushback or certainly a stalling in the process of the mayor of London uh, getting more powers. And, it, and the flavour of the current national government the sounds we get from them is is pretty against any uh, extension of devolution in London. It might do more elsewhere. We will see. Um, but it feels uh, not a time really for optimism uh, for any expansion of devolution and powers in London, whatever the case may be. And we're obviously very pro, as a think tank for London, very pro expanding the powers uh, that are wielded by Londoners themselves to govern their city. Um, even worse, perhaps, is a risk, and this might be uh, sort of heightened if there is a sort of Labour landslide or a big uh, victory for Sadiq in the in the upcoming election. Even worse, maybe, is that the Conservative Party or the, you know the national government uh, turns away from London devolution and tries to either reduce it in some form or actually maybe even abolish it. Rob, I mean, the classic uh, Bloomberg line, in a way, follow the money. I mean, power, you talk about expansion of power, not very likely, perhaps. But what about money? It certainly came up in the debate, suggestions that there might be ways in which London, clearly a rich place in many ways, uh, would be yeah. able to tap into that to give the, pa- the power, if you like, to the mayor to do things with. But it does come down to the money, doesn't it? It does. Um, but at the moment, the mayor of London uh, and other London structures are, in a sense, the, the, the power that Sorry, the, the, the money that flows to them is very much determined by the, the national settlement, by the UK laws uh, and, and basically national government. So uh, if you want that to change in any meaningful way, um, broadly, I mean, there are some areas around the edges you might be able to fiddle. Um, but broadly, it needs to, you need to persuade people who are holding uh, the power and the purse strings uh, in Whitehall and Westminster. Paul, uh, the chances of uh, perhaps the property taxes in London or, uh, you know, the share of council taxes being increased to go towards City Hall? So that's a, um, that's a question that a lot of people um, raise, this idea of fiscal devolution, but then tend not to go too far with it because the, the issue around, say, stamp duty in particular is that because of property values being much higher in London than than most of the parts of the country, a large share of stamp duty that is generated in the country is actually generated in London. So the the authority question then is, is if London gets to keep all of that, what happens to funding that goes elsewhere in the country? uh, There was a commission a couple of years ago called the London Finance Commission that uh, that looked into these sorts of things and set out um, proposals as to what uh, what could be done. And I think what their their suggestion is is that... um, London gets to keep more of uh, more of the tax that it raises, but also at the same time it sees a, a reduction in the grants that it gets from central from central government. Now you might say, well, what's the point in that? You're just rearranging the deck chairs on the on the Titanic. But the crucial element there is if, if London gets to keep the tax that it generates, then and, it, and gets to be able to say exactly how it wants to spend it, as opposed to this money coming in with strings attached, as is currently the case of the stuff that gets sent from central government, then it sort of changes incentives. It gives it gives the mayor more freedom and power uh, in terms of how he or she spends that money, um, which in, in, in itself is a power. You know, it's not a delegated. Here is some more power over transport, but actually being able to decide how you spend your money is is a pretty powerful thing, and that's certainly something that. Not only the London Mayor, but all local government in England is is pretty constrained by relative to what we see elsewhere in the world. 
very briefly to you both, gentlemen, because uh, we are running out of time. Uh, first to you, Rob, on the same on the issue of crime. I mean, it's been front and centre, obviously, because of the murder of Sarah Everard. Is there other? Is there anything clear that the new mayor could do to improve that? Uh, I mean, crime's an interesting area. The, the mayor has significant power and control, not total, but significant power and control over the police service. But it, it's not clear to me exactly um, what the what the right reforms would be or changes uh, that would uh, improve the situation. Although uh, it is very clear that lots of people have become uh, even more concerned and vulnerable uh, through the through the pandemic on on crime and and sort of safety on the streets. All right, Paul. In a sentence, if you would, what do you think is the prospect? But really, in a sentence. Uh, well, as Rob said, the mayor is. is has a lot of power over policing. I think uh, if something's going to change, then it is within the mayor's gift to bring about that change. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.